0: Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 through to 12. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting several days, or seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mechumen, Biztha, Habona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zitha, and Carcass to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. This is the word of God.
1: Excellent. Good morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible uh, with you, it will uh, serve you to have one in front of you. And we have them in the foyer if you haven't managed to do that. But if you've got uh, your Bibles there and keep them open to Esther, we'll be looking at this uh, text together um, through not just chapter 1, but even through parts of chapter 2 and, uh, and looking at this story. Shall we pray? <laughs> Heavenly Father, you draw our attention to the things that you would have us know perhaps things that you need to remind us of, or perhaps things we would never known, or things to be, um, Lord, challenged and changed in our thinking. We'd ask, Lord, that we would come to your word, knowing it to be a living and active thing. But, but, Lord, more and above that, you are living and active. And so, Lord, would that be the thing that might resonate in our hearts and minds, in our understanding of you? So we pray, Lord, that... Uh, Your spirit would be doing that work as your word is understood and that, Lord, you would be changing us, conforming us to the way that we might know not only you better, but ourselves as well. Pray, Lord, you'd equip me to the task of being faithful to proclaim and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you believe in an active God? I actually don't have a good introduction, so I'm just going to start with big overarching questions. Um, A God that's active in this world, kind of nod, Uh, but not just active in this world in a cosmic kind of sense, but active in a personal kind of way, interested and involved in you, Um, powerful and loving. And you would say, well, that's that's the, the God that Christians say that they believe in. And perhaps as we ask those questions, if I was to point out to you that maybe you've noticed that we live in a season where that kind of idea is derided. It's just mocked out of hand. And so you'll hear things, and perhaps even these thoughts echo in your mind from time to time when you say, isn't it really time for the faithful to give up the wishful thinking and concede that it's just blind faith that you're holding on to? And isn't your life determined more by... uh, Survival of the fittest, or by chance and circumstance? And and isn't it the influence of the powerful and the privileged that are really running things? I mean, just look around you. And aren't you clinging on to the idea of God and religion because you can't face the reality of his non-existence? It's just a crutch, really, for you. You'd rather give your lives and your thoughts to a mythical idea than perhaps that you have purpose Um, that might be just defined by a causeless cosmos. Uh, And another thing, are you aware on this whole God thing uh, that you're on the wrong side of history, clinging on to this antiquated idea that Christendom has had its moment in the sun. You've set the agenda long enough, you did your best, and some of it good and helpful and loving, but you wreaked your havoc. You've discriminated, you've abused, you've vilified, you've ostracized, you've subordinated long enough. You are on the wrong side of history and we are mocking you mercilessly. You are diminishing. You look quaint and irrelevant and culturally you are a curiosity to us. Oh, and, and we're turning the tables because we've got the power. I wonder if those thoughts have been bouncing around in your minds at all in recent months or years. And if they are, then my question is, how are you going to live... In a culture of powerful opposition, give up, shut up, throw up, stand up. From now until Christmas, we're going to be exploring that question in this theme, uh, in a ser- and that theme in a series that we've entitled Exiled Resilience. Our primary text uh, for the next month is going to be a, a strange book in the Old Testament, one that we've just read a moment ago. And so today, We're going to go back to a time that really is so unlike the time that you and I live in. Um, And and yet, you'll find it strangely familiar. We're going to go back about two and a half thousand years to the Persian Empire and to the book of Esther. And we're going to meet Esther and she's going to help us think, uh, or the characters in this book at least, are going to help us think about, um, not only how not to spell her name, um, I know that's all right, um, but um, help us to think about this, this idea of resilience. Um, Esther is the last book in the historic books of the Old Testament. Uh, those books mainly tell the story of God's activity with, uh, with, amongst his people, the people of Israel. Um, it's actually a story that goes right back to the beginning of Genesis... But uh, from the time of Joshua through to Esther, you're telling this historic story that's being told, Uh, a story where God has elected to bless one specific nation. In fact, it begins with just a family. He's made promises and he's kept them to that family. This nomadic people with with no prospect of descendants have in fact been established now as a nation. They've been given a homeland with wealth and great power. Um, God has made promises and he's kept them and these people have made promises to God and largely they haven't kept them. And so one of the promises that God has made is that were they to disobey, he would send them into exile. And so the time has come to pass and they are no longer, by the time of Esther, in their land under God's rule. God, in fact, looks a long way away by the time you get to the book of Esther. And he doesn't look very powerful at all. And so famously and strangely in the book of Esther, not a single mention of God appears. He's hidden or he's absent, which is weird uh, from the outset of a series like this, especially since we're asking questions raised in our culture about who's actually running things and got the power, then you'd think that it would be a smart thing for me to then turn to a place that demonstrates just how real and present and powerful God is. Go to a history book like Joshua or one or two Samuel where you'll see God's deliverers or where you'll see God's kings established and ruling and building an empire. But I I want us to see that the book of Esther will serve our purposes and our situation better. The characters in this story occupy a cultural landscape that in many ways mirrors our own. Because if you find yourself in a foreign land with intense pressure, to conform to culture and you're tempted to pursue prosperity and plentiful pleasures, or if you're feeling threatened with persecution or ridicule, then in this book, where God is hidden, you're likely to find him speaking to you in very confronting and encouraging ways. So let's begin and let's meet Esther. Only when you start this story, you don't meet her first up. Uh, did you notice verse 1? You meet the politician with all the power and the privilege and the partying manifesto. His name is Xerxes. He's otherwise known as Ahasuerus. And uh, the first thing that we're told about this bloke is that he is a ruler. Verse 1. Xerxes who ruled over 120 provinces stretching from India to Kush. That's somewhere around modern Ethiopia. And he rules the Persian Empire from 486 to 465 B.C famously rules it, and you'd have to say that that empire was substantial, marked in green. From east to west it covered northwest India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, Turkey, northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia and the Sudan. That is astonishing as an empire. And and then you ask the question as you begin this, well, who's got the power? You go, that guy. That is incredible. 120 provinces that he rules over. And look at it, just how powerful he is. He is Xerxes the Magnificent, full of splendor and glory. And from verse 2 to verse 8, that's what we're shown. He'll, in fact, display all of his riches for a six-month period. At the end of that, he'll throw a banquet. It'll go for a week. It'll be food and grog galore. The vast wealth of his kingdom. And there's a liberal invitation for all to come who are thirsty or hungry in the citadel of Susa. Come and party without cost and drink from bespoke goblets without restraint. And and who's not going to go? Right? Listen to that party. You think I want to be there. Here's this generous invitation... I mean, the wine is going to flow, the food is going to come, it's going to be tremendous. And it's, well, okay, it's coming from someone who could destroy you. But, but you'd go if you got the invite. And from the least to the greatest, you're invited to come. And we're meant to hear this section. And our, draws, our, draws, our jaws are meant to drop. <laughs> the other will follow, right? We're meant to pine for it. We're meant to be part of it. We, we, we want to be close to power and, and it looks so opulent. You're meant to see the, the garden and the hanging linen and the, the silver loops and the, all of the colour and the stones and the fairy lights and the, and the, the marble flagging and the, and the couches and the beautiful people and the beautiful dresses and you Hang on a second. Haven't we seen this before? There's this distribution of red, not red roses, but overfilled red wine glasses. you meant to say, oh, choose me, Xerxes. Give me the flower. Keep me in that party. I want to be part of that. You're living the life that I was born for. Here's to you, Xerxes. You've got the power. Xerxes, the all-powerful, sings out the song. The omnipotent and the almighty, isn't he? God might be absent, but this is the God who's reigning and ruling, the picture of complete power. Well, well, actually, not quite. So so you might expect that we would all rush, perhaps, to such an invitation to come and party with the king, and that no one would oppose or reject that kind of an invitation. But we learn in verse 9 that there is a woman who knows this king well, and she doesn't want to go anywhere near him. Her name is Vashti. She is the queen of Xerxes. And she's been holding a banquet of her own, simultaneous to his. And as those women have gathered, we're told no more detail than the fact that they were separated. We're not told why it's happening that way, and we're not told if it's a more refined event or if it's similar to the drunken booze-up that the men are having. But there does seem to be a degree of contrast when you read in verse 10 that on the seventh day, partied on for seven days, King Xerxes, high in spirits, doesn't mean he's happy, well, he probably is happy, but he's high in spirits from wine, he summons. He looks around that party and all the things that are taking place, and it's been rowdy and bawdy and fun, and he thinks a room full of drunken men. What does this party need? It needs to see my how hot my wife is. So let Queen Vashti be brought to me. Summon goes out. And then wait, not you, send a eunuch. I'm not stupid. And then he stops, wait, send two. And he thinks again, she is very, very beautiful. Let all seven eunuchs who serve the king, why he's got seven, no one knows, but so difficult and trusted is this task and so treacherous that not only will none of them make that journey alone, Xerxes ensures that their names are recorded in scripture for all time. You think of all the people that you don't know their names in scripture, but you know the seven eunuchs that went and got Vashti. They are Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Vzitha and Karkas. My unaroused, sexually incapable friends, go fetch my queen. It is ridiculously excessive. But everything about this king is excessive and terrible because it is a terrible objectification that's about to happen. Verse 11. Bring before before the king, Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. And there's an assumption in there perhaps that maybe she's wearing not much more than just the hat that is left on. The woman to be paraded, to be used and assessed and no doubt abused by powerful men. And here is an ever timely topic. And now, before King Xerxes, the picture of complete power, Queen Vashti does the unthinkable. Verse 12, when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. It's unthinkable. It's dangerous, unthinkable, and embarrassing for the king. For the ruler who rules from North India to Kush, Xerxes, has been defied. Can you imagine? Flabbergasted, spits out his wine. What? And he's enraged. And that's what human power always looks like. It's about to lash out. For it's been defied and he is indignant and full of vengeance. Verse 12, as it continues, Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So what will his next step be? Well, it's surprising, actually, his next step. Because into this drunken, debauched party, the inebriated king reaches out for wise counsel. Now, you've got to say, have they been part of the party? Were they in Susa? Were they invited? Yes, yes, yes how wise are these guys going to be? But here they come. Verse 13, we're told something distinguishing about them, not only that they are wise, but that their wisdom is contemporary. Notice, they understood the times. Ah, good. They're culturally savvy, these wise people. They'll be up on the issues. They've got a handle on culture. So what kind of wise counsel do you expect them to bring? Well, imagine how it would play out, don't you? You've got the king, you're the wise people, you're going to come and bring the wisdom. Perhaps it sounds something like this. Well, sir, wisdom means telling truth to power. And so here is how we see it. Clearly, you're very powerful, but clearly, you're also very drunk. And parading your beautiful wife through this beer hall is colossally <coughs> stupid. It's a dumb thing to have requested. Don't you care about your queen's purity and her safety? And don't you have a problem with objectifying women? We think that Queen Vashti has shown great wisdom by avoiding you and your bawdy mates. We applaud her, and we would also go so far as to instruct you to apologise for being such an ignorant misogynist. (laughs) That would seem like wisdom. But, But that's not what happens. That's not the wisdom of the age. That's not contemporary wisdom for any time. Xerxes, it says, you are great and magnificent, and you have been grossly defied. And this is terrible. For, for, for you to be treated like that, it's, it's terrible, but it's worse than you think. For you, Xerxes, you are the paradigm of power. And if someone has defied you, if it's happened to you, then what kind of global chaos will it be if, for the rest of us if our wives behave like that? And so in verses 16 to 18, one of the wise persons, Mamucan, speaks up and brings the counsel and gives his thoughts that Vashti must be removed, deposed. And that's exactly what happens in verse 19. Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. It's written down and legislated in law, not just for that relationship, but for all relationships across all of the 127 provinces. It can never be repealed. So you want to defy power? You're gone. You want to cozy up to power? will legislate in your favour. Oh, and sir, might we suggest, this isn't so bad, really. Queen Vashti's gone, but you can always trade up, verse 19b. Let also then the king give her royal position to someone else who's better than she. It's just an opportunity, really. And Xerxes, he likes the wisdom, of course he does, and he implements it. His implementation isn't to divorce her quietly. But instead, in verses 21 through 22, true to his character, it's excessive. Across the 127 provinces, all of them will hear about it and good order will be restored. Look at verse 22. He sent dispatches to all the parts of his, his kingdom, to each province in its own script and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler of his own household using his native tongue. Everyone will get it. Everyone will know. And we've got good order, power, power, threatened established and so here we are and already in chapter one we see a story that feeds across and tells us what complete power looks like and as it asserts itself you see that abuse is going to continue and you say well this is terrible where the god is is nowhere to be seen Xerxes is the one who gives and takes away life. You defy him and you perish. Party with him and you'll prosper. He's the picture of complete power. Or, or is he? Because already we've seen that he's not in total control. There's one who's defied the king, Queen Vashti. It hasn't worked out great for her, but, but there is a capacity to do that. And perhaps we're meant to wonder is there someone else who's in control? Ultimately, pulling the strings. And then when you stop for a moment and you ask yourself, what happens when you consider this story against your own experience? I wonder if you felt the seeming invincible forces that drive our world as being total and complete. That they are the ones that will have the say and rule the day. Political, media, media cultural, all of those things that influence and power, I mean, they're insurmountable. They're invincible. But as the story of Esther begins, it gives you pause for thought to suggest that maybe that the forces of this world are not as powerful as they seem. They just seem invincible. And maybe there's someone more powerful that is hidden but but active. Because the story shifts, and we begin to meet more characters. It, it shifts, in fact, interestingly, from pictures of power to vulnerability, and from strength to weakness. A sober Xerxes has a problem. He, he's the womanizing king who no longer has his trophy queen. And he has publicly shunned her. He can't take her back without losing face. What kind of a king would he be? And so what's a king to do? Well, it's been hinted at already, but then it's further developed a plan of action. And when you hear the plan of action, it just seems absurd and preposterous. You've never heard of such a thing happening. A powerful politician is going to run a Miss World competition. <laughs> it's never going to happen, Right. And not only is that so bizarre, but the one who's the powerful politician running the Miss World competition is going to be on the judging panel. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verses 2 through 4. Then the king's personal attendant proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. And let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all the beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. So a search is to be made from India to Ethiopia. Ethiopia. We want to round up all of the beautiful women and bring them before the king. We're going to put them into a harem. We're going to keep them there for a long period of time, pamper them, and then we're going to parade them before the king. And king, you get the pick of the harem. Work your way through it, and whatever you want is yours. And that's the plan. Xerxes loves it. And so he sets about seeing that it takes place. And then in the middle of this, we discover a turning point, the first of many in verse 5. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. And immediately we meet some more characters. And immediately it shifts us to actually realise that this story is happening in a really important context. Before you know anything about the characters you're about to meet, you know something about their national identity you know that there's a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin and immediately you're meant to realise that this story is the one that fits into that wider context. Here is someone who has been part of the people of God and who has been brought into this Persian empire in exile. He, he's an Israelite. But they're no longer in Israel. They're in Persia and part of the heart of the Persian empire and they've, they're living in that place. And so now all of a sudden we're asking that question, well, how will God's people live in in this place in exile? And the rest of verses 5 to 7 in chapter 2, you you hear about how they're going to live that out. So you meet this first one, his name is Mordecai, he's the son of Jair, the son of Shimeel, the son of Kish, he's got this lineage And in fact, you can know his story. He's one of those who's been carried off into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. But Babylon's fallen, and now Persia is the ascending reign and rulers. And so he's been among those who were taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Now, Mordecai has a cousin. We're about to meet another character. Who's the cousin? Well, it's Hadasha. That's her Hebrew name, Hadashah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. Oh, she's an orphan, this girl. This young woman who was also known as Esther, It's a Persian name, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And all of a sudden you go, oh no, if only she wasn't. But she is, she's, she's beautiful in form and figure. And, and Mordecai had taken her, as, her own, as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. And we realise she's in the crosshairs of the king's plan for the harem and for the beauty pageant and and then when you think about what you learn about Esther you know that she's young and that she's beautiful you read on you discover that she's winsome and she's singled out for privilege she's the triple threat you learn pretty quickly and you think well she's she's the front runner." i mean you're watching you know episode 1 season 1 and you she's going to be there on the last night for sure like she's going to be picked of all of the girls in the harem I mean, this is tremendous, isn't it? She's, she's a front-runner for the, for the beauty pageant, which, don't kid yourself. As soon as you really think about it, you realise how terrible and dehumanising this enterprise is. For from India to Kush, the attractive have been forced to enter into a harem of a debauched and powerful king. They're about to be prepped and pampered like they are animals getting ready for a grand parade. But don't dress it up like it's an exciting idea for a reality TV show. These women will be exploited and defiled. They'll go from virgins in the heron to concubines. And perhaps, perhaps one one will receive the unenviable status to be selected as queen. But that's the best option and it doesn't look great. And then you look at Esther. And whilst you're aware she's a front runner, one of the other things that our storyteller wants us to learn in verse 10 is that her nationality and her family background is kept quiet. It's hidden. Look at verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and her family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And then immediately you've got to say, well, why? She's kept very quiet about being a Jew. Part of the people of God living in this extravagance and the opulence, and keep that on the down low. And as you read on through this story, you begin to understand why. Because to be a Jew in Persia is not something that assures you of safety and acceptance. In the Persian Empire, perhaps much like being a Christian in the empire that you and I live in, it's not a popular and safe position to hold. It's not esteemed. See, Esther, you look at her and you say, Esther, you've got a lot of things going for you, but your spiritual identity, and this is Mordecai's thinking and perhaps her own, your spiritual identity, the idea that you belong to the living God, that's a liability. You best keep that quiet and keep that to yourself. And I wonder if you've ever felt that. That that, that identification of being one who aligns themselves as a believer of the living God that you haven't felt the wisdom in assimilating and hiding, keeping it on the down low and letting it not be seen in your workplace or around the dinner table or in the uni tutorial or in the letters to the editor or on your social media feed. Or And it's just better. You want to promote, you want to advance, you want to then... It's just, look, you've not got the power. And Mordecai and Esther, they know that. They know that in the place where they live, they are a picture of vulnerability. And they've not got the power. And it's important to see that that is a repeating picture of the people of God in every age. And it's why Esther is such a helpful book. I've been reading a guy called Mike Cosper and he says, We are most assuredly people in exile. We need to return to questions. We We need to return to the question of what it means to be a Christian in the midst of our cities and states and nation, and what the shape of our public witness should be. We most assuredly are people in exile. And that's what we are seeking to do through this series over the next few weeks. In fact, it's going to lead us right up to Christmas. Because we believe that God is calling for faithful, resilient presence in an assimilating and increasingly hostile culture. How do you live out an exiled resilience, holding on to faith in the midst of such power and pleasure and opulence and decadence and hostility? Assimilate and hide? Shut up? Or stand up? Esther and Mordecai begin in this story as a picture of weakness set against strong worldly power. And it must have felt to them hopeless. And you can understand the choices that they're making. It looks smart, doesn't it? It looks wise. No sign of God anywhere. Completely hidden. But but, but as you read ahead and you see how even this little section finishes in the first two chapters, you've stopped and you've got to ask yourself, hang on, really? Is it all just kind of rolling out and is it all just fatalistic? Is this all just given over to chance? Is Is it just random good luck that means that Esther isn't about to get executed or Mordecai doesn't meet a grisly end or is it just the the benefits of Esther's genetic makeup that means that she's hot that's going to save her from this skeptics will say yeah or is there a hidden hand that's at work look at chapter 2 and verse 15 when the turn came for Esther the young woman that Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle Um, Abahael, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes, into the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. It's probably about two and a half, maybe three years after Queen Vashti has been deposed. She's brought before the king. Now the king, verse 17, was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, to, uh, great banquet Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. They, they got a public holiday out of this, right? But not only that, she got, she got the banquet, the crown. She <coughs> And did that all just happen? Or is there a... A hidden hand that's working things. Remember back to verse 5. There was in the city of of Susa uh, a Jew and his cousin. And more and more as you move through this book, you realize that there's a God at work and moving things. Even though he's completely absent and hidden. And doesn't that help? I mean, today, as you think about your life or the opposition that you face or the fear in front of your friendship groups or your workplace or that persecution or whatever that is, doesn't that help to know that there's maybe things that are unseen that are powerfully at work? And then if you look back and see the God who weaves and works his way through history, even your own personal history, like uh, Kieran's testimony before, you see, oh, there's a God who orchestrates and in seeming chance encounters with, you know, failed roadies that can bring people into the kingdom. But is not God able to be at work and we see all these things. And, and of course, that's one of the big themes of God's word reminding us that there's a God who remains enthroned. And in fact, maybe we're not very good at being able to see where power lies. And it's exactly what Psalm 2 tells us. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together. I mean, they're all getting together. Look how powerful they are. And they're against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. We're done. You're on the wrong side of history. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, on my holy mountain. There's a God who does reign and rule. And it is a really silly thing, isn't it? This worldly grab for power and pleasure and all of that. And we think there's influence there. But who is the one that reigns and the one that rules? Look and see. And recognize the one that he's established, and so what does it look to call upon counsel? Look to verse 10 of chapter two of Psalm two. "Therefore you kings, like Xerxes, you want to be wise? Then be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and you, uh, angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Because Xerxes, you look incredibly powerful and I'm terrified, but Xerxes' empire will go. And this world, this media, this politician, this life, whatever it is, it looks so powerful and dominant, but it will go. Therefore, you kings and you people, be wise, kiss his son, come to the one that he's established as his ruler. Because when you see who his son is and his kind of reign and rule, this one who is the king of kings, you realise that he's a much better king. He's not reckless or bawdy or self-seeking, he's not after his own pleasure, but instead he wants to pursue you. He'll be self-sacrificing, he'll lay down his life, and with great liberality he exchanges his abundant righteousness for your debt, so that you might gain access to an everlasting kingdom. You're not selected for this kingdom because of your beauty or your perfection or your power, but because you're vulnerable and you're compromised and you're assimilating and you're reckless and you're unwise. You're like me, sinful people that this king loves. And he's the one who's paid it all. Such that no power of hell or no scheme of any man or king or whoever it might be could ever pluck you from his hand. And until he returns or calls you home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. A kingdom that he establishes, maybe unseen, but real and enduring. And this one who's established as the king of that kingdom looks upon his disciples on one occasion and says, Let me tell you how you should think about that kingdom. Would you bow your heads and listen to what he says? And maybe if you know it, repeat it with me. He says, You ought about to think about this kingdom in this way by praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever.
0: Amen.